You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2007. Today's episode is entitled, Rationalized Disobedience. We all know truth that we don't obey. Many times we rationalize our disobedience. Even worse, we rarely believe that our disobedience will have tangible consequences. Listen to this story of a business owner who rationalized disobedience to the principle of honoring the Lord with the first fruits of his labors. Today we're going to take a little journey back in time to the early part of the 20th century. The southwestern region of the United States was a very arid place, it still is, but it was very arid back then. There was very little life there. The population was sparse, miles and miles between houses and cities, and mostly desert, rattlesnakes, and cactus. But through this flowed a source of life. It was called the Colorado River. Colorado River had its headwaters in the Rocky Mountains. And of course, with ample snowfall every year, there was plenty of water to flow down the Colorado River. It's about 1,400 miles long going to the Pacific Ocean. The federal government, along with the states in that area, were, were looking for some way to bring life to the desert area. So they began to study what they could do. In particular, what they needed was irrigation and they needed power. As you may recall, electricity was an invention of the late 19th century, so it was beginning to be spread in the 20th century. So how do we get power to the southwestern part of the United States? Well, one way to do it is to harness the river. The river would be a great way to begin to generate power, and the river would be a great way to begin to irrigate the farmland, particularly down in the uh, southern part, southeastern part of California, Imperial Valley, Coachella Valley, those areas. So the federal government and the engineers, they conceived a couple of plans. And one of them was a project that would be consist of several parts. It would consist of what, would, what became known as the All-American Canal, which is a canal off the Colorado River into California, into the, into the valleys there to provide irrigation for the farmers. And it consisted also of a dam up by Las Vegas, which then would be used to produce power. And that dam could uh, produce enough power for, for probably a half million homes a year. So it would be a major accomplishment to have that capability up there. So they began to study sites, and they picked two particular locations that looked very favorable. One of them was called Boulder Canyon, and the other one was called Black Canyon. And the engineers studied these for a number of years. This was going on for about 30 years, by the way. It was in the uh, late 20s that the engineers really finalized their plan, and Congress appropriated about $185 million to do this project. About a third of that sum went to the project that we know as Boulder Dam. Boulder Dam was conceived of by the federal government, and as most, most government projects are, they didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how they would execute the project. As it turns out, the federal government, when you do a contract with them, they require a performance and payment bond. Well, it turns out there was not a single contractor in the country that could put up the bond. So how are you going to build this project? Does that surprise you? I, mean, I think that's quite humorous that nobody in the government thought about, well, gee, this is such a big project. Can anybody bond it? So what, ha what happened was six companies formed a conglomerate, came together, literally as a joint venture, and they called it Six Companies. Very ingenious name. And they came together and combined their bonding capacity and entered into a contract with the federal government to do this project. Now, you can imagine how long all of that took. 
all the paperwork and stuff that had to be, you know, all the, the bids and the negotiations and all that went on. Well, in the meantime, while all this is going on, those of you that are familiar with history remember what happened in 1929. The stock market crashed, and we entered into the Depression, what we now know as the Depression. So by the 1930s, everybody's kind of waking up to the reality that we're in trouble. We have people that are out of work, and we have no work for them. And you, you may recall there was another incident that happened at about that time. It's called the Dust Bowl. And the Dust Bowl hit the middle part of the country. It really made it very difficult for farmers to be able to do what they normally do. So you have all these people out of work, including the farmers. And here's this big project in uh, the west part of the United States. Well, everybody gets wind of this. And so what do they start doing? They Everybody starts converging on the Las Vegas area looking for this project. Now, the work ethic back then is a little different from today. People back then would do virtually anything. Now, today, if, you, if you've tried to hire anybody lately, you might have noticed they're rather picky today about that, what they will do and what they won't do. Well, that wasn't true then. These people were hungry for work and were thankful when they got it. So we have this massive group of people that have converged on this boulder area of, of um, of Nevada and California that are in Arizona that they're hungry for work. Now the, the construction site where they had chosen to build the dam was not Boulder Canyon. Uh, the engineers initially thought Boulder Canyon would be the best site so as they designed the, the project the, the moniker Boulder Dam was put on the project and then as they went along and discovered that Black Canyon was better and they moved the location of Black Canyon they never changed the name of the dam. So it's Boulder Dam in Black Canyon, not Boulder Dam in Boulder Canyon. Just a little incidental trivial there, thing there. It shows you how things develop. So anyway, here's this, this project that's getting ready to be built. $65 million is going to be spent, which is a humongous amount of sum back then. And you need about 5,000 people to man this project. The closest city is Las Vegas, which consists of about 5,000 people. Las Vegas is not prepared for another 5,000 people because that 5,000 men equates to probably 15 or 20,000 people. So they're not prepared. So the federal government authorizes the construction of what they called a model city. And we know that city today by the name of Boulder City. Boulder City was built about six miles from the construction site. Now the distance from Boulder City to the, the construction site had to be traversed. The, the terrain was very, very rugged. It was very difficult. There were no roads, no railroads, no way to get from Boulder City to the construction site except by foot or mule train, and that was not going to work because you've got men and you've got materials and you've got equipment to get to that construction site, plus you've got a major change in elevation because the construction site is down in this canyon, and, of course, Boulder City is up here on the plain. It probably was six, seven hundred feet elevation change over the six miles that, that the road would go. So the, the company that was in charge of building Boulder City needed to find a contractor that could build this road through this inhospitable area. And so they contacted, contracted with a company uh, in California. The company was, was a newly formed company. It was RGL Inc. And RGL Inc. was a dirt contractor that had been in business about 10 years. The owner of the company was a Christian. He had had an experience with God in the late uh, 1919. And it was a very significant experience where he felt called 
to do what he did as a dirt contractor. Now, how many of you feel called to do what you're doing? That's good. You know, it's unusual to, to, for people to feel called to do what they're doing, particularly when you think about being a dirt contractor. That does not sound like a very noble calling. So here we have this dirt contractor in California who's a Christian who has been called upon to bid on this project, and he's happy to do it. After all, he has just had this incredible year. 1930 was a wonderful year for RGL. They did record revenues, and they had, believe it or not, a 30% profit margin. Now, who wouldn't love that? That kind of gets you puffed up a little bit, doesn't it? Look what we did. In fact, Robert, the owner of the company, is sitting in his office in early January 1931, and his controller walks in and says, Boss, I got the figures for you from 1930. He said, Great. Now, they didn't have computers back then, so they did them by hand, so it took a little while to get them. But here's the numbers. He looked at that and said, wow, record profits, record revenue. We are doing great, and guess what? i got two contracts on my desk. We're going to have a fabulous 1931. This looks really good. The very first contract we're going to do is build that road from Boulder City to Boulder Dam. So as he's pondering the good fortune he's having, he realizes that, you know, it's really not good fortune, that God has been good to him, that God has favored him with the ability and the opportunity to have this financial success. So, you know, he wants to honor the Lord. He said, you know, the Proverbs say to honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your wealth, of all your increase. So he said, I need to honor God with the profit that I made this past year. So he begins to think about that. Well, how, how would I do that? So let's see, um, I think tithing would be a good way to honor God. So let's say I'll take 10%, tithe means 10%. So what, do I, what should I do with that? Should I take 10% of the profit and give it to my church? That's one thing I could do. I could take 10% of the profit and I could give it to my favorite missionary. Because I, I like this, this mission society he's part of. This would be a really good investment. Or I could take 10% and put it into something else. Or maybe, maybe I take the 10% and I divide it up and you know, give it to a number of worthy causes. There's all kinds of options. So he's pondering all these things, and then the idea hits him. He says, you know, this next year, I'm probably going to make three, maybe five times the profit that I made this year. You know, if I take the Lord's tithe and I invest it in the business, you know, I can really have a big tithe next year. And so he decides to do that. Shortly after he did this, he starts the project the project that building the road from Boulder City to Hoover Dam, or it was called Boulder Dam then. And as he goes along, one of the first things that happens is he encountered an unexpected rock formation. Now, they're digging this road out of the terrain. Before he bid this project, he had sent his engineers out there, and they had done test bores to find out, is there any subsurface condition that we have to deal with? Specifically, are there some rock formations that are going to give us trouble? Every test bore missed the hidden rock formations. Every one. So when, they, when they're, they're, they're going along there and they hit that first rock formation, they're totally surprised. What is this? This didn't show up in any of the test bores. And as they got into it, they realized it was some of the hardest rock they had ever seen. In 10 years of moving dirt all over the southwestern part of the United States, they had never encountered rock formations like this, and they had to get through this rock formation to carve out this road. Robert enjoyed a record year of profitability. 
He was so excited about his success that he decided to honor God by investing his tithe in his business. After all, what better way to increase what he could give to the Lord, so he thought. The next year was disastrous, 1931. He lost so much money that he was on the verge of bankruptcy. Did he disobey a biblical principle? And if so, does the failure to obey biblical principles have economic consequences? Well, let's get back to the story. He started the Boulder Road project from Boulder City to the Boulder Dam site, and he hits this rock formation. One guy described the rock formation as so hard that if you drove a car within three feet, it would dent the car. <laughs> it was that hard. And they had never seen anything like it. They started drilling what they call these coyote holes. Those of you who are familiar with construction know that a coyote hole is you drill down with a drill bit and you put dynamite in the hole. When Robert's watching him drill, he's pretty excited because he sees, you know, the drills going down. And he thought they were going down in the rock. What was happening was the drill bit was being disintegrated. <laughs> so they pulled the drill up and the, the bit hadn't go down at all. There's just no bit anymore. He said, whoa, what do we have here? This is really bad. So they tried every way they knew to try to get, it, get into this rock so they could begin to put dynamite in there to blow it apart. They couldn't do it. Robert is about to pull his hair out, what little hair he had left. He's kind of like my hair. Okay? He, he's, he's stuck. He's got a contract. The, talk, the clock is ticking. They're liquidated damages, which means you don't finish on time, you're going to pay a penalty, and he's stuck with this rock formation. So he's pacing and looking around, trying to, what do I do? And finally, he went down the side of, of, the, of the mountain there, where this rock formation was in the side of this mountain, and he starts looking at the layers of rock in this, rock, this side of this mountain, and he sees this little layer, it's kind of a yellow layer, that's kind of underneath the hard rock formation, and he recognized that. He had been a miner before in one of his prior jobs. He recognized that. He says, you know, when I've seen that before, that's been soft. So he went up there with his pick and starts picking around, and he discovers that is kind of soft. And so he gets his men to start digging a tunnel underneath this rock formation. And as they were digging, the, the, the soft rock wasn't as soft as they thought. So it, it became a very hard process, but they dug and dug 24 hours a day for probably a week and a half to dig out enough underneath there where they could put a carload full of, of dynamite underneath this rock formation. And Robert prayed, Lord... If this doesn't work, I don't know what else to do. And they exploded that dynamite. And at first, nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, the rock formation shattered. And they were able to get their bulldozers in there and clear out the rock. And they were able then to finish the project on time. But that wasn't the only rock formation they encountered. They encountered several rock formations. And when you go on that road today, you look at the, at the rock formations on each side of the road, and you will see some that are really crumbly. And you will see some that are hard. It was the hard ones that ate his lunch. In fact, his own word was, that took my shirt. Because at the end of the project, he was deep in the hole. He lost everything he made in 1930 on that project, times two at least. Now, back in those days, the counting wasn't all that current. It lagged a good bit behind, you know, the... The, the, the reality of the day. So it may be two or three weeks late. So at the end of the month, you know, you have to wait till the middle of the month before you found out how you did last month. 
so he didn't know quite where he was. Plus, Robert's way of dealing with bad news was denial. Does anybody do that? Just don't want to look at it, pay attention to it. So he said, by his own admission, he said, well, I had people hounded me for at least $50,000, and it was probably more than that, probably at least double that, and I had no way to pay it. Now, would you agree that a bankrupt person is a person that when they liquidate all their assets, they cannot pay all their liabilities? Well, that's where he was. That's where he was. He could not pay all of his liabilities. He was in a deep hole. So as he reflected on this, it was a very sobering reality. First of all, he realized the risk that he had put his men in. You know, they got into some very hard situations where it was very dangerous what they were doing with those rock formations. And he could have lost them, and they could have been killed. Secondly, his company could go on bankrupt. Now, he had probably 1,000, 2,000 employees. Because back then, when you did construction work like that, you did it with people. You know, granted, they had some machines, but they didn't have nearly have the machines that we have today. So it was a lot of manpower. So you got 1,000, 2,000 people. Well, that's what, four or 5,000 people when you consider the wives and the children. And this is in the midst of a depression. There's not any work available. You know, you, you suddenly lose your job. You've lost your job, and there's really not a lot of hope of finding a job. So he's put those men at risk. And then you've got Boulder City. Boulder City is the new, new city for the workers at the dam site. And you've got 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children there, so probably 20,000 people that are dependent upon that road to get the men, the materials and equipment to the construction site to do the work. Without that road, they couldn't do that. So he's got all those people at risk. And then you've got all the people in the southwestern part of the United States that are depending on the work here being done at the dam for to produce electricity for that area, plus the irrigation down in the southern part of Arizona and California. All of that is at risk because of one project. And as he reflected on that, he became very clear in his mind that he had disobeyed God. That his presumption to take the tithe that he was convicted he was supposed to give, and whatever is not of faith is sin, according to the Apostle Paul. He was convicted that was the way he was supposed to honor God with his first fruits. He had failed to do that. He had presumptuously assumed that he could take that and invest it himself, and that would be okay with God. And he never inquired of the Lord. Now, Robert was a humble man. That drove him to his knees. It drove him to his knees in repentance, it drove him into his knees and asking the Lord to forgive him. It drove him to his knees and humbly confessing his sin to his family and his friends and his management team and his company. Can you imagine a senior leader going to the management team saying, guys, I have really sinned against the Lord, and that's the reason we're in this predicament? Can you imagine that? Do you think the management team would forgive you or would you just shoot you? Today we'd probably shoot them. But back then they had a prayer meeting because these men were trying to walk with God. And they knew the solution to the problem, it was a tangible problem that was rooted in spiritual reality. Because what scripture teaches us is that we have an intangible God, a spirit being called God who created a physical universe. The physical universe is by its very nature is rooted in a spiritual reality. And that is God. And that's a picture for all of reality. Whatever's going on in your workplace, the root issue of that is spiritual reality. Now, you've got to kind of think about that a while, because that, that goes against everything that we, we think about. 
And just to give you an example, I had a client call me a couple of days ago, and he had been working on a new business venture. And after about three or four months of experimenting with it and uh, doing some testing and, and studying with it, and spent, uh, you know, probably $20,000, $30,000 trying to discern, is this something I'm supposed to do? He kind of was, you know, feeling he needed to shut it down and go on and do something else. And all of a sudden, somebody calls him up and says, hey, I'd like for you to come do that for me. So you've got a big client now all of a sudden that wants you to do what you thought you are supposed to shut down. So he calls me up and says, well, what do you think I ought to do? I said, well, it sounds like what you're trying to discern is whether or not that client opportunity is of the Lord or the enemy. And it was just silence on the phone. You had those calls before? Like, what? And I said, well, isn't that the game? I mean, you're trying to figure out, is this the Lord's will for you to do this business? And he said to me, he says, you know, I'm just not used to thinking that way. I said, yeah, I know we're not, because we're used to thinking like the world. We haven't learned business from God's perspective. We've all grown up in American Christianity, probably a lot of us in different denominations and churches and things like that, and you grew up, and where did you learn business? You learned it from the work world, or maybe you went to business school, and your professors there, were they godly men? No, they weren't godly men. Not, I don't know very many of them. And even the ones that I do know some, some godly Christian men that are teaching in Christian business schools, and I've gone and visited with some of these people, and here's the kind of thing, here's the conversation I had with one recently. I said to him, I said, uh, tell me, how do you teach business at your school? And they said, well, what we do is we take the, the typical textbooks, and we just do what, what you would do at Harvard or anyplace else. I said, well, I thought you were a Christian school trying to teach business from a biblical worldview. Oh, yeah, we have a devotion at the beginning of the class. I said, so that makes it a Christian class, is you have a devotion at the beginning, then you go teach secular material? And you could tell that was like a new thought. Like, wow, I never thought about that. See, so even, even the best of schools that are well-meaning and well-intentioned have not thought through how do we do business biblically. How do we bring biblical principles into the marketplace? How do we hire? How do we fire? How do we manage? How do we lead? How do we plan? How do we determine our value proposition? The Bible has enormous amounts of information and principles for us to follow if we have the heart to hear them and a willingness to glean them. Well, Robert was mature enough in the Lord to be a good student of the Word, and he knew he was fully convicted in his heart. His predicament was because of his sin. And so he knew the only way out of this was repentance and turning to God and saying, Lord, help me. Remember the story about, about Peter? He's in the boat. There's a storm. Here comes Jesus cruising across the water. And Peter says, hey, that's pretty cool. Bid me to come walk on the water with you. And Jesus says, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts walking around the water. This is pretty cool. Until Peter just gets focused on the storm, the wind, the waves, the lightning. And he goes, ah, what am I doing out here? And he starts sinking. And what does he say? Help me. Lord, help me. That's where Robert was. Lord, help me. Because he knew that's the only, only salvation he was going to see for his business, for his people for the people he was trying to serve in that community. And so he learned a powerful lesson through that experience. And the lesson was, 
Do not presume to rationalize your disobedience. Did you hear me? Do not presume to rationalize your disobedience. We all tend to do that. We find something we don't want to do, and then what do we do? We rationalize a way that we don't have to do it. And we'll put a Christian veneer around it where it sounds good. Just like Robert did. Oh, well, next year I'm going to have even a bigger tithe. That way I don't have to tithe this year. The challenge for all of us in learning to walk with God in the marketplace is really learning to obey the principles. You know, a lot of us can, can go read the principles. Those of you who have been around some of my teaching you know the principle of C4 for hiring. A lot of people have heard that principle. It's in my book and so of my audio product. What I see, and I'm working with my own clients, is they will acknowledge that principle, but invariably what I hear, it's too hard. It's not practical. It can't work in today's society. And so invariably they wind up hiring somebody you know, that, that's not a C4 person, and what do you think happens? It's a bad hire. Over and over again, it is a bad hire. But when you hire people according to that principle, which is the biblical principle for hiring, what happens is you wind up with world-class people. And, you, and when you begin to build an organization with world-class people, what do you think you might build? A world-class organization. That's what you're going to do. You want to be world-class, you've got to have world-class people. And that starts with hiring people according to God's principles. And so Robert got that. He got it deep. It was a very expensive lesson. He paid for his education. By the way, education costs money. You ever thought about that? Education does cost money. Most of us don't want to pay for education. You look at where we put our money today, we give lip service to education. Where do we put our money? Into entertainment. Into people playing kids' games for millions of dollars. Now, what is our priority in this country? Our priority is our own entertainment. It's our own flesh. You know, it's about our own fun. Instead of truly helping people be grounded in the Word of God and learn how to walk with God in their work. Can you imagine how blessed it would be if you were 21, 22, 23 years old? Now, we, we have one here, I think. But if you could roll back the clock and you had the biblical understanding that you have now, maybe even more, and you're able to start your adult life walking in a biblical worldview and really understanding how to discern God's will for your life. Can you imagine what that would be like? We have the opportunity, those of us that are 40 plus and on up, we have an opportunity to help the generation behind us do that. But we have to have the vision that Robert got. And Robert got very clear, and that is, I am not going to rationalize my disobedience. I'm not going to look at a biblical principle and say it's too hard, it won't work, it's not practical. No more, we're not going to do that. I'm going to fanatically obey the word of God, even if it financially costs me. Because the other way is going to financially cost you probably anyway. But this way is what Jesus said. What good is it if you suffer for doing wrong? There's no value in that. But if you suffer for doing good, there is infinite value. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 and 3. So the, the lesson here is to learn from Robert. By the way, uh, do you know who Robert was? Robert Letourneau. R.G. Letourneau. This was R.G. Letourneau. This is the lesson he learned as a young businessman that shaped the rest of his life. 
And you know, he went on to become a great philanthropist and got to the point where he lived on 10% of his income and gave away 90%. You want to learn Robert's lesson? You learn Robert's lesson by learning to take Scripture seriously and by committing to doing what God says. No matter what the price is, obedience is the game. So my challenge, the takeaway for you today is this. Now think about this. What commandments of God, what principles of Scripture do you know that you're not walking in, and how are you rationalizing your disobedience? Now just think about that for a second. Everybody does it. And you know when you do that, it's going to create the great rock formations on your road in life that are going to block you from where God wants you to go. Disobedience has a price. It has a consequence. So think about it. What biblical principles do you know that you're not obeying and you're rationalizing your disobedience? The Lord give you grace as you ponder that and give you revelation and conviction to line up with Him.